The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. And I hope to do this evening with us. Father, we're thankful for the time you give us together for your word. We are thankful for the freedom that we are provided in this country. And we realize that's nothing in your word that you ever guarantee us. But it is something that we get to enjoy, that we have the ability to gather freely, the ability to speak freely in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that we would take uh, a proper advantage uh, of that uh, as you give us opportunity. But we're thankful even more so for the freedom that you give us in Christ, that every moment of every day you see us seated at your right hand uh, with all other believers, but those that add, but you see us as those who have died to the sin nature and by that death freed us from that. But you furthermore count us to be alive so that we uh, can be those that can then walk in newness of life. And we're thankful for these uh, things that you say about us and have provided us. And as we look at your word tonight, that we might more appreciate uh, your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it. Amen. So um, we're not going to review First John, but I did put up kind of an outline to kind of see the overall structure of the book from a certain perspective. I'm sure you could approach John from different perspectives. In fact, uh, if you've ever studied a book, one of the interesting things to do is to open up different writers and commentaries and look at how they don't all outline a text. And it's not like any one outline is, because I don't know that John sat down with an outline. <laughs> That's the whole thing. He was being led along by the Spirit to write these things. But our general structure that we start out with in chapter one with an introduction. So we have an introduction to, to the Word, who is going to be flesh. And then the last part of chapter nine all the way, or the last part of chapter one, excuse me, through chapter 12 is, I would say, is Christ's witness with the signs. I wrote of the signs, which is, I should have corrected that. But that's these signs, and they all testify, as John's going to tell us, and we're, going to, we're not going to hit that tonight, but they all testify to something that you and I should learn something from. And he explains some of those things in the context, but they're things that John uh, that the Spirit had John focus in on because they say something that wasn't about the nation of Israel. Most of the other Gospels, when Jesus speaks and teaches, the teaching is about the nation of Israel and God's promises and plan with them. Then we get chapters 13 through 16, and we can include 17, but I separated it out where we have Christ's teaching for us. And interestingly enough, that in all of the Gospels, that is the biggest section of oral teaching from Jesus that you have anywhere. It's bigger than the Sermon on the Mount. It's bigger than the teaching on the, on the, um, the Olivet Discourse, as they call it. Olivet Discourse, because it was on the Mount of Olives. Okay, we're talking about that. Chapter 17, then we just concluded Christ's talk with the Father, uh, which also then is a talk about us. Chapters 18 and 19, which we're going to work through tonight. I wasn't going to do this. I was just going to dump down to chapter 21, because chapter 21 is Christ's final call to love, which we're not going to look at tonight, so you're just going to have to read it yourself and see if you think that that's a good way to assess that uh, chapter 20 the resurrection but chapters 8 I, I was reading through the end of John and I kept thinking you know we, we've done we've actually worked through all of this other stuff building up to the to the upper room let's just finish it out but I'm not going to do uh, I don't have anything <laughs> I don't know what would you say I don't know that you ever when you teach are you, do you have anything that's like cutting edge and that somebody else hasn't said before? Even if you can't, like, like Jim is saying, uh, you can search theologies and stuff and you might not find anybody that 
really breaks out a teaching. This doesn't mean that somebody else hasn't taught it before. I've, I've sat under pastors that didn't ever publish a book. Nobody ever listened, but, but, uh, but they taught on things, you know? And uh, even Josh and I, we sat under a man, uh, we, well, different men, but one of them in particular did a lot of teaching. And yeah, there is a little bit of writing in one book that, that's been collected, but 90% of what he taught has never been written down, you know? It's people learning it, which even though you write stuff, ultimately this is the way that God really has designed us to learn is interacting and talking. So we're going to walk through this. Having said all that, there's nothing profound in this except for the scriptures themselves. And we're going to walk through this. I'm, we're going to read through the whole thing. So just buckle up. <laughs> and we're going to read through chapters 18 and 19 uh, and uh, reading it through myself, just sitting reading through it quietly laying in bed the other morning when Peg was still sleeping. Um, it wasn't, uh, it didn't take that long is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and, but just, so we're going to read through this, but if there's something that you find interesting or helpful, maybe you have a question, maybe you have a comment, just stop us and we're going to do this. So if you have your Bible, open to chapter 18. I'm going to do my best to stick to the English in my margin. This is the New Revised Standard Version which is not the greatest translation in some places, but I don't think it'll be all that horrible either. And I was taking a survey and almost everybody at the table has about the same translate, has different translations. So I thought, oh, well, we're not going to worry about it. So here we go. Chapter 18, verse 1. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and Pharisees, and they came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. We've talked about this before, but that word in my Bible, so Judas brought a detachment. I don't know how your Bible translates that, but in the Greek, it's a word, well, it's the word spirea, but it's, it's the word for a... Oh, I just lost the word now. This is why you write notes for it. it. A cohort. That's the word I was looking for. And it's 600 soldiers. Now, there's, a, there's questions when people in, interpret this. Did he literally bring 600 soldiers or did they send 25 from the 600 soldiers? I don't know, but he says he came with a cohort of the soldiers, which would be 600. And what, how did, how did the... How did the religious leaders even get Pilate to give them a, co a cohort of soldiers in the first place? What did they have to charge Jesus with? Kind of bring a charge to Pilate to say, hey, we got somebody guilty. What? Treason. Treason, you said, right? Treason, yeah. Uh, tre which was a really serious crime. It was, one of the few, it was a capital offense under Rome. And that's what they're bringing against him. So if they really brought this, and they had, remember there was another time that we have a, a question about this, about somebody else that had gone out and led a rebellion that is recorded in the Gospels and also talked about another situation in Acts. Jude, or Philip, Pilate goes, not on my watch. And he might have sent 600 soldiers out there. Because usually, if you got a nut job out there by himself saying, well, I'm king, but nobody else listens to him, you don't care. But if it's serious enough for them to go and get soldiers from Pilate, it probably implies to Pilate that he has a following. And yes, he has these 11 guys that are with him, 
But he also has others. And these people know that there were maybe a hundred or a couple hundred that were lining the streets when he came into Jerusalem just a couple days prior. So, verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, For whom, or whom are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus replied, I am. I am. This is the ego I me. We went through a bunch of those one evening back a couple years ago at least. What is the significance of that expression, I am? What? How does it proclaim his deity? And to the Jews, where did that come from? Exodus chapter 3. Remember, Moses talks with God and he says, when I go back to the people, who am I supposed to say sent me? And he says, tell them I am have sent you. I am that I am. So this is what he's doing. And he says, I am. Uh, Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine a bunch of these guys, like soldiers and stuff, and a person goes, I am, and they go, oh, they're all so strong, I can't believe he admitted it, and they all fall back. No, that's pretty stupid. These are trained soldiers, okay? Not only trained soldiers, but one of the other things that you have in my Bible, they translate it to police. It's the word huperites, which Paul uses of himself. It's a word that meant under rower, but the word simply meant somebody that served under the direction of another person. They, they took instructions from the people on the top and transferred them to people below. And they, this was used of people that essentially functioned as police or guardsmen for the temple and worked under the direction of the chief priests and Pharisees. Chief priests, really. So they all fall to the ground, it tells us. What is that, by the way, that whole event, that, that one little snapshot there in that verse? What is that really telling you? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. What? Power. power. He had the power to not be taken. He had the power to not be taken. That's right. With just his name. And he didn't even have to speak his name. He could have just done it with just standing there. But he spoke something so they knew that this was something coming from him. And it causes all these people just... Verse 6. Uh, verse 7. Oh, go. I just make a note all of that is that he was more than a man. He was you know, God, but he was a man. He died. You know, so both sides of that, and that's what this does. Jesus of Nazareth, you know, the guy, the man, the, he's a carpenter up there. You're that guy, right? I am, but clearly he's saying more than I agree with you. Right? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Showing his humanity and his humanity. Boom, yeah. I, I want to write down notes if people say something that I, I'm afraid I will forget later because that does happen sometimes. Verse 7. Again, he asked them, so whom are you looking for? He poses the same question. And they said, Jesus, so now they don't go, oh, no, we're good, we're good. You know, isn't that what you would think? If somebody just with a word knocked you all to the ground, wouldn't you all kind of think, okay, I, I, I'm fine. I don't need to. I don't need to talk to you. But no, they say, Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus replied, I told you that I am. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. And he looks at his disciples. That re it reminds me when I was reading this, um, Jesus or, or John's statement at the very first of John 13. 
it says that Jesus was gathered there for that meal, but it says, it says, knowing all of these things, he says he loved his own, he loved them to the end. Even in the garden, when you would think, well, this is about those people taking him, you know, he could look out for himself, but he doesn't. Even to the end, he continues to love these guys and says, let them go. This isn't about them. This is about you and me. This was then to full. I honestly, I just honestly think it's it's giving them an opportunity to see just how determined they are to take him. Just instead of going, wow, you're God, you just knocked us all to the ground. Maybe we should take seriously what's been going on. But they don't. They're like, no, we're still going to take you. We're still here to arrest you. We're going to do this. It, it, and which think about that. How often is it that for you and I, especially just as believers, just think of us as believers, not even unsaved people. Even when we know something is sin, how often do we stop and go, you know, that's sin, and God doesn't like that, and I don't think I'm going to do that. How often is, it, is that actually the way we respond to that thing? A lot of times people just go ahead and it's like, I know God doesn't want me to do it, but I'm going to do this anyway. That's the nature of sin. I'm going to do it anyway, even though I know better. And it's almost like these people have this opportunity to go, yeah, we're given one last chance to respond properly to this man and nope, you know what we're going to do? We're still going to, uh, we're still going to take you. I got to move over here because Gary's hiding behind Peggy's head. So <laughs> there we go. I don't know if that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, remember those men that were under authority, they, if they didn't take him, they would be breaking an order. Oh, wow. They can still see. Yeah, so. Yes, they would have been breaking Which in. Is, you know, typical of people. They don't, you know, I've been told to do this. I have to do yeah. it. They don't, if there's a moral or a decision to be made of right and wrong, it's much easier to just take someone else's thing instead of saying, I'm responsible. Yeah. And I don't know. I do not know how the Romans trained their soldiers, but traditional training of, of um, armed services in the United States has been to train these people to unquestioningly submit to their, to their commanders. They don't want people out there second guessing the instructions that they've been given. When they're told to attack these people and they're going, those people, really? They look innocent. They look like just, well, I was going to get political there for a minute, but I won't. We'll avoid that. But you know what I'm saying. They look like Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> and remember the guy in uh, uh, John's uh, Acts 16:31. If they lost the prisoner, they were held responsible for that with their lives. That's right. The, the jailer. And back in verse three, we had the soldiers, but we also have those, which my Bible translates police but those servants, but those guys were the guys that were sent to take Jesus back in John 7. Same group of people, same title. And back then, they didn't take him, and they come back, where is he? And they go, well, no one's ever talked like this man. And they, they get in trouble with their the people over him. We don't even know if it's the same group. They might have kicked those guys out and got some new guys in there that would listen to them. We don't know what's happened in between. What? 
Yeah, well, yeah, that might have happened too. Verse 8 then, Jesus said, I told you that I am, so if you're looking for me, let these go. Verse 9, this was then to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. And we had, um, we've had a statement to this effect elsewhere. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Elsewhere, we're told, Jesus says, do, not, do you not know that he who lives by the sword dies by the sword? Which doesn't mean that every armed service person, police officer, something that carries sidearms and such, that every one of them dies a violent death. But, you know, the thing is, is if that's the way you live, your likelihood of dying that way are increased, right? We all get that. But he doesn't talk about that here. That's not the point in here. The point here is I've been given a drink to drink this cup and that cup is to actually submit himself to what's gonna take place with regard to facing, facing his time on the cross. Uh, and so he says, I'm supposed to do this. Don't stop this. What do you think the reasoning of Peter is when Jesus just had everybody fall on the ground? I, I just think Peter looks, you're supposed to be the king. We're kind of your entourage. normal boisterousness that, hey, yeah. no. Just like he said, watch my whole body. Just like he, you know, just head first, jump, and yeah. look at the consequences later. Right. It, it, for what his human nature is. You know what I mean? So everybody has different ways they might react. And I think it's important, this, this verses are important because a lot of times when you have Peter, Jesus saying that you all will abandon me and Peter goes, no, I won't. And the Lord says, actually, before the night's over, you're going to deny me three times. And you sometimes, if you, all you do is read that passage, you look and say, Peter, you're so foolish. You're going to chicken out. He doesn't chicken out. Right here shows you he wasn't chickening out because Satan wasn't yet sifting him as wheat. That's going to come in a while. At this point, Peter's standing there in front of the temple police as well as a cohort of Roman soldiers. And they have how many swords among the two disciples? Do you remember from elsewhere? Not in John, but in another gospel? They had two. He says, we have two. And he goes, that's enough. Again, which I always think Jesus wasn't a pacifist, but at the same time, he wasn't ever telling his people, arm yourself for war. He's just saying, it's okay to have something when you're out there to protect yourself. He didn't expect them that they were just going to go out one at a time, which is kind of the way they, that's not what he was communicating under the kingdom message. Let's put it that way. And so he tells them to put up the sword. Verse 12, then that, can, that cohort and the commander of the cohort, because this is a Kiliarch, this was one over a hundred men. Um, this is one of the reasons some people then argue that he took, that there were 100 out of the 600, but I don't care if it's 600 or 100. It's still a lot of trained soldiers, one way or another, as well as the servants or the, or the, the police. They arrested Jesus and they bound him. And they first took him. Go ahead. It says the band, the spira, and the kiliarch. So that'd be more. Well, the kiliarch was over. Right. You, had a, you had a cohort. The of the... Yeah, you had a cohort and then you had kiliarch that were under these these other groups so within there. It's a leader of a hundred, so yes, maybe he was the leader of a hundred of the spirit. Right, exactly. So that's why some of them. That's why some people think maybe there was just part of the cohort that was there. 
But like I said, 100 or 600, it's still a lot of, a lot of soldiers. Verse 13, for the, first they took him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was better that one person die for the people. Where was that stated? That's back in chapter 11, after he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he says, you know, he says, it is better that one person die than that the whole nation die. And, and John tells us that he said this, he, though he, he's not a believer, but though he's a high priest, the spirit, this is a good place to show. Just because a person, the spirit causes a person to say something or do something, doesn't always mean that person's a believer because he takes that unbelieving high priest and the spirit causes Caiaphas to utter a legitimate prophecy about Christ. And John tells you that. We, we looked at that some time ago. Verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since, that, since the disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. And um, so again, this is one of the places where we learned that John, the writer of this letter, his family, or at least he personally somehow had some enough connection with the high priest that he could get him in to the high priest's uh, property, courtyard and such. Yeah, but how do you prove that it's him? that it's him. It's, you don't get it right here. You get it, we kind of get it elsewhere as we're kind of piecing this through. You never, he never tells you that this is John. The interesting thing, because he never mentions him by name in this book. It's always the disciple, that other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple that was leaning on Jesus' breast and saying, Peter, who's he talking to? Or Peter says to him, ask him. That's the other way around. Peter says, ask him who he's talking to because he's right there. But it says it in verse 15. Yes, that's what we're saying. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with, the, with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Yes. But he doesn't tell you who he is. He just says that other disciple. So John never mentions himself in the writing of this letter by name. Okay. And there are people that think, well, maybe this isn't John, but I think it's just the nature. Let's, let's put it this way. We have... This is, this is not determinate, but we have people in the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century that attribute this gospel to John and to nobody else, as well as the letters. Well, at least one of the letters. Verse 16, but Peter was standing outside the gate. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate and brought Peter in. <coughs> the woman said to Peter, you are not also one of the, this man's disciples, are you? That's a expecting him to, to go, uh, uh, yeah, you, yeah, I am, uh, in this context here. This is kind of what she, eh, she's just kind of wondering, and uh, he says, I am not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves, and Peter was also standing with them and warming himself. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus replied, I have spoken openly to the world, I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple. Now, there are a few times he did teach with his disciples that they'd come to him and privately he'd explain like a, a mystery like you have in, in Matthew 13. But think of the teachings you have, the Sermon on the Mount, the, uh, um, the, the, the teaching about the, the, uh, the mysteries of the kingdom in Matthew 13, except when he kind of gives the explanation to the disciples off on the side. It's not like they go away in another room. It's just kind of off on the side. And all this, he says, it's always it's always been in the synagogues and the temple, or where all the Jews come together. In other words, the point is, I wasn't holding secret meetings. 
You guys were there. You heard these things. Other people heard them. So why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the police standing nearby struck Jesus on the face saying, is that how, how you answer the high priest? To me, it's interesting. Something similar is going to happen to Paul when he's standing before the high priest later in the book of Acts. And Peter goes, I didn't know he was the high priest. Or I didn't know he was a servant of God. And there's a debate that, well, Paul's been out of the country. He doesn't know if that's really the high priest. Or that Paul's kind of like saying, that's the servant of God? That guy? Kind of. But Jesus replies, this guy just strikes him. Jesus replied, if I have spoken wrongly, if I have spoken wrongly here, and I've just got to check myself, or in an evil manner, test, testify to me. But if I've spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So they don't get much out of Jesus. He's like, you know, he's not denying anything, but all he's saying is, you guys got witnesses. You have lots wrong? of people that have heard. What? What did I do wrong? Yeah, yeah. And Simon Peter... Just... No. He, they send him to Annas because Annas was the was was and Caiaphas the high priest at that time. This is this is what we learned from other things. The people had more respect for Annas than for Caiaphas. Verse eight, nineteen. The high priest then questioned Jesus. That's because Annas was still considered to be. By the, Jews. by the Jews, considered to be high priest. And that's one of the reasons that people go, this had to be somebody that knew what was going on because nobody else would have called Annas high priest when Caiaphas was the high priest at the end of this. Caiaphas is the high priest. Rome had deposed Annas. Yeah. And, but the Jews still considered, the Jews had to depose him. Yeah. It was Rome, and they didn't consider Rome really American. Let's put it this way. We have people in our country that want term limits. We have term limits for presidents, but we don't have term limits for Congress members, right? And we want those. Rome knew the problem they had with Jews, and so one of the things they had done is essentially a term limit. And no high priest could serve more than, and I don't know what it was, two years or something like that. It wasn't very long, and then they had to be replaced. But numbers says it's for life. Yeah. And as a result, the Jews looked like, well, the other thing, from what I understand in reading, the Jews, Annas was more popular with the people than Caiaphas was. He was... He was a politician as a high priest, the way he... Uh, Why did they make that? Well, because it does tell us, if, you just, if you've read the whole book, you find out that, that um, Caiaphas is high priest. It tells you that in verse 24. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. That's why they say verse 19 doesn't make any sense if John is, was not there. If he didn't really know what was really going on at that time, he would not have known this. He would not have understood what was happening. I just asked, why did they make it more clear that Annas isn't the high priest, but the Jews thought of him as the high priest and not Caiaphas? Oh, why, why, why doesn't... Uh, yeah. Well, because I think it goes back to what, Jew, what Josh was just saying. When a high priest was established as high priest... The Old Testament law said that that was a high priest till till they died. You didn't have high priests that retired and went and sat it. So I think what would happen practically is that when the Jews want something done with them, when they want respect for the ruling within the Jewish community, they're going to go to Annas. When they want respect from Rome, they're going to go to Caiaphas. That's that's what I get. 
they would. Caiaphas was high priest that for that year. Are you reading that in 1149? If if you go back to look back in 1149, 1149. This we we kind of referred back to this passage when Caiaphas makes a statement that one man should die on behalf of the people, not all the nation. But in verse 49. But a certain one from them, that is from the leadership, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, or of that year, said to them. in John 18, 13. Why doesn't it say that there? It's in John 18, 13. Oh, I have to go back to 18, 13. Oh. Okay, okay. I was just going back to the passage back in chapter 14, or back in chapter 11, excuse me. So that's the best I can answer for why the Holy Spirit had it written this way. So we go to verse 25. Now, Simon Peter stood there warming himself, and they asked him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And again, they're kind of thinking, well, you know, tell us. And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, very interesting, <laughs> a relative asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And again, Peter denied it, and at that moment the cock crowed. So John actually records all three events. Other gospels have, when the cock crows at this time, that Jesus turns and actually looks at Peter, but it doesn't have it. John doesn't record that. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. So he skips over this religious section of his trial in this context. And it was early in the morning, and they, they themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them, since they wouldn't go in, he comes out to where they are, and said, what's the accusation that you bring against this man? And they answered, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. <laughs> in other words, come on, why are you asking questions? Of course he's bad. Pilate said to them, well, take, take him yourself and judge him according to your law. In other words, you guys have a law, do that. And the Jews replied, and this is the point now. We are not permitted to put anyone to death. That was a right, that was a right that Rome restricted the Jews in what they could do. Okay? The only thing that the Jews could bring against him for a capital crime was under the Rome was called temple desecration. If a person was considered desecrating the temple, which is what happens with Paul in Acts 21 is he didn't do that, but that's what they think because they think he brought a, a Gentile in and the Jews think that they've got a reason to, to get rid of Paul, but it didn't happen there. But this is what's happening here. So um, let's go back here. Pilate, again, verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourself, judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was then to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. If the Jews would have put him to death, how would he have died? Stone. Stoning. There were other things that happened occasionally, but very rarely. Stoning. Does, can anybody tell me why, why God chose... There's a, there's a real good reason why God chose stoning. Community. It was community. It's not one person. Yeah. Our government takes a person, 
They put, they execute a person in a sterile environment. You get just a few witnesses to the execution, but the general population, we don't want you to see this. Everybody saw this. Everybody saw what went on and it wasn't done by the state. It was done by the community. Everybody took responsibility for that person's death because in the 10 commandments, one of those commands that made up the law was not to bear false witness. It doesn't mean thou shalt not lie. It meant you shall not bear false witness. That was the command. In fact, I was reading some stuff on the law last week and the Jews have never understood the command thou shalt not steal as meaning that. They always take that word steal and they take it for kidnapping, which is exactly what God requires the death penalty for. It's not just common theft. That's not what was forbidden under the law. Anyway, the point being is the Jews as a community were responsible for this. And if I bore false witness, yes, Jim did that. I saw him do that. I got to find another witness because you can't kill a person on two. So you got to get a second witness. Peggy. Oh, yeah. Well, wait, I, maybe a couple can't bear witness. We have to get Josh on board. We do this. But then if in, in checking it out, they find out, no, there's people going, no, no, I was there. Jim did not do it. Everybody goes, no, there was another guy involved. Guess what happens to Josh and I? Now we get stoned, see? And so it really was a community event when you brought charges against people. It wasn't just one judge standing up in front or anything like that, very important. Anyway, back to our main point. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the headquarters again and summoned Jesus. So he goes back in and now he wants Jesus to come into him. And he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, <coughs> do you ask this on your own? I remember it was like, is this your own question? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus replied, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, um, my servants, the same word that's used of the temple police here, it's a way of looking at the disciples, my, my servants would be fitting or would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. In other words, when Jesus takes his kingdom, how much help does he need? He doesn't need any. He comes from heaven. He takes care of all of it. He takes care of it all himself. He doesn't ask us to help. He doesn't ask even the Jews to help. Goes on. Pilate answered him, so you are a king. And Jesus replied, you say that I am a king. And it's for this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. So Jesus says, yeah, I'm a king. I was born to be a king. I came in the world to be a king. That's what this was about. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked him, what is truth? In other words, I think Pilate's kind of throwing out that thing that truth is very relative. Your truth, my truth. How do we ever know what's, what is true? Probably something. I don't think he's just being philosophical. He's probably being very just honest. You think Pilate hadn't heard a lot of different people come before him and it's like... Is this guy telling the truth? Is this guy telling the truth? I don't know who's, you know, what, it's hard to discern. It's hard to discern. And after he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I, I can't find any accusation against him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted in reply, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a, a bandit they have here. Uh, uh, it's a word for being a person that is, uh, is violent, okay? We have a kleptase, that a person that steals like this, but this word is also used of a person that robs or steals by pulling a, a knife, 
on you. In their world, today it'd be a gun or something like that. And so that's what Barabbas was. Barabbas was a violent person. Okay, and they, they call him a revolutionary. That's based on other texts. That's interpretive. Notice how John is not giving you all the other details. Again, when you read the Gospels, if you want, if you want to know all the things that happened in that event, you got to read all, all four of them, and you got to do your best to try to fit together what happens when and who says what. And instantly that name was taken out of the baby name book. <laughs> oh, oh, nobody, nobody names their kid Barabbas after. Well, you would think that. You would think nobody would ever call their girl Jezebel after the Old Testament. But yeah, every once in a while you run in your like, well, it was a name in the Bible. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Delilah. Deli yeah, or Delilah. Yeah, that was a, she was a radio personality, wasn't she? Some years back. Okay. So any comments before we move into the what happens next? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because what is he? How, what does Jesus call himself? I, I am the truth. And that's true about him being God, because the truth comes down to the fact that there is only one true God. And the one true God is the one that establishes truth. He basically says what you're capable of doing, what you can't do. You can do these things, but you can't do any of this without me. You can't save yourself without me. You can't have freedom from your sin nature without me. It's just not possible. Pilate doesn't get that. Yeah, yeah. He hasn't been listening to Jesus' teaching. He's just got a brief encounter with Jesus in this event. So that brings us to chapter 19. And Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Uh, and that word for flogged, if you guys don't already know, normally means to be whipped with a whip that had multiple um, tethers and pottery shards and different things that were with it. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. And in other words, the soldiers all know what he's being charged with, and they're mocking him for it. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So here it is. The Roman official is going to say, I, I can't find this guy guilty. So Jesus came out wearing the crown, the thorn, purple robe. Pilate said to them, here's the man. Very famous statement. Here's the man. Or behold, literally behold the man. Uh, and that's, I think, the way there have been some books that have used that expression. It's like crazy how one is saying, I have nothing against him. They say, don't give him to us. Give us the other guy that's a, that's a criminal. That was John's commentary. Give us Barabbas. And then Pilate says, here, have him. Yeah, he just But then it's the Romans that are, it's the Roman soldiers that are doing this mocking. So it's kind of interesting as they're instigated by the crowd. Right. Yeah, and I think sometimes they make it look like they're doing this to him in a private place, but apparently, well, they do do it somewhere else, and then they bring him back out to the crowd. This is right. Okay, I'm just trying to make sure I'm keeping this straight. Verse 6, And when the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, 
Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no I find no case against him. And they keep saying I find no case. That's the way my Bible translates that. Literally, I did not find a, a, an accusation or any uh, uh, word, any cause is the word. You don't find any cause against him. Verse 7, and the Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And if you know the Gospels, then you understand that the claim to be the Son of God is the claim to be God. God. Now, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. All of a sudden, he's going, oh, now, now they've given me something else that that was their law. I'm sure he... Go ahead. Previously, he had said, are you a king? Yeah. Which is, uh, would be against Roman law. Right. And now, when he forgives him to them... He brings up the, he's calling himself God, yeah. which would be against their law. Right. And they were concerned about that. He could care less. He probably had run into other crackpots that thought they were gods in their world. So, in fact, if you go down to Walla Walla and you go out east of town, there is a sign out there and there is, uh, there was a Mormon group back in the 18, I think in the late 1800s that came through in that area. And there was a man there and he and they ended up diverging from the rest of those people, but he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be, he claimed to be the son of God and speak for this and all. And there were and quite a little group of people there for a little while out there in this area. So yeah, I'm just using that as an example that yeah, there's all people all through history that think that they're divine. Yeah, exactly. When Pilate heard this then, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and, and asked Jesus, where are you from? And, uh, and Jesus uh, gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know? I love this. This is, this is the best interchange in this whole thing between him and Pilate, in my opinion. The, other, the thing about the king is important because it shows you he did come for that purpose, despite the fact that there are people, especially in Reformed theology, that say, no, he came to be a savior. No, he says, I came to be a king. But they want to deny that. But here, to me, this just is one of the things that's interesting to me. Pilate therefore said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and I have power to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. When he says this, um, uh, and that word above is the same word that's used back in John 3 when it talks anothen. We're born out from above and, and over there it says the one, John says the one that comes out from above referring to Jesus Christ. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you, he is guilty of even greater sin. In other words, he's responsible for this too. But his point that he makes with Pilate is, this, this by the way, this is um, Daniel 4. This is Romans 13. This is 1 Peter 2. That those people that serve in various capacities. We know he talks about kings, but he also talks about in those that are in more local leadership. That's what Pilate was. Pilate was a smaller local regional leader within the Roman government. And what Jesus is implying is, I don't think he's saying you've been given power from Caesar. I think he's saying you've been given power from God. You've been put in this position from God. Exactly what Paul says in Romans 13. Exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. And exactly what, what Daniel learned. And Daniel shared with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. People that are, and so he says, you, you've been given this power. Meaning, you're responsible to exercise this power responsibly. Okay. 
Peter, we saw, I think we looked at that the other day on Sunday morning. Peter, Peter says those people have been put there as a, as a, uh, uh, to punish evil and to praise righteousness. That's what they're there. That's what they're supposed to do. You decide how well human government does that job. Verse 12. I would say, I would say Judas, and I would also even say the Jews, because the because the Jewish leaders also were in this position. Yeah, yeah. Because remember, because even even Jesus said this said this was Jews, even though Jesus was was clearly critical of what the leadership was doing. He says, you do what they teach you, just don't do what they do. Because they do sit in the seat of Moses, and they do teach the law. And Jesus told the Jews that. Uh, I believe that's in Matthew. I didn't pull that one up. So they were; those people were responsible to do this. They were answering for, to God for this. In fact, there's a very interesting statement. It comes out of Psalm 69. Um, Paul refers to it in Romans 10 where he says, they have set a table before me. And it comes out, when you go over there to Psalm 69, where he records that, it's a table that you set before a dignitary. Now, normally, if you had a dignitary come in and you were going to come to your place and you are going to set a table before them, what would you feed them? Your best food. Your best food, your best wine. He says, you know what they gave me for food? Gall. And for my drink, vinegar. Would you set a glass of vinegar or would you set wine? Because you know what vinegar in their world was, normally. It was just wine that went bad, <laughs> you know? That's what it was. I learned some interesting thing about the whole wine thing in that world. I was watching some Greek history thing, and they had a whole ritual. The men would gather, the, the men would have their own, it's like a man cave, and all the men would come and visit, and they'd have a whole ritual where they'd have the wine in the middle of the room. It'd be, they had another container that it would be put in with water, mixed with water, and then when they passed it out, they'd be discussing philosophy or things of the day, problems of the day. Everybody, you didn't get to just get it whenever you wanted it. There was a slave that would pass it out and everybody had it. Now it would often devolve into debauchery by hours into the night when they're, you know, but initially it was everybody took it in a very scheduled manner. It was kind of interesting. Hmm. But, you know. yeah. But but the point that Paul was making in Romans 10, or uh, it's Romans 11, pardon me, and quoting out of Psalm 69, is here their king had showed up. And Jesus says their king, they should have set the table for a dignitary. And what did they do? They treated him as a criminal, and they gave him gall for their food and vinegar for his drink. That's the kind, that's the way they treat him. And that's that comes down to this point. They had this opportunity to welcome him as the king. And they should have been responsible to do so, but they're not. And so they bear even more responsibility in this, probably because they should know better than even Pilate did. So is it therefore, I mean, just in a Greek, is there a he or is it they? It's literally just the one, the one delivering. It's a participle in the Greek. It's an articular participle. So it's kind of, so John does this all the time. When you go to 1 John, uh, <laughs> We just went over these in Bible study last week, if you remember this down there in, in Nelson. We were talking about the present participles in John function almost like nouns. We'd say the sinner, but they don't say the sinner. They say the one sinning. We'd say all the believer. They don't say the believer. They say the one believing. 
And so it just, it looks at something that characterizes that individual. And they use it for all kinds of people. It's like they, definite and kind of indefinite at the same time. Yeah. It's uh, not, it's, it's very definite, but then leaving an element of, because it doesn't specify exactly who. If you, if you make it be one yeah. person because it's singular, it could be the Jewish nation as a group, it could be Judas, or it could be, or it could be just like man, all three of them. Yeah. And when you, when you understand that, the way Jesus uses that and the way John uses that, it's not saying that there's just one singular sinner, one singular betrayer. We have places where it says this is the one that would betray Judas. It tells us that in other passages. But here I would take this as John uses that articular participle to simply say the betraying one, which started off with Judas, then turns over to Annas, and then Caiaphas and the council that turns him over to Pilate. So you've got several individuals that are all playing this role of turning him over. And Jesus, this is what he'd be, he predicted. You have it over in Luke. He says, the son of man shall be handed over to the Gentiles, which is exactly what they've done here. They've turned him over to a Gentile ruler and the Gentile soldiers. Verse 12, it says, I gotta go back here. And it says then, um, what? what's going on? Oh, I, I see. From then on, I keep reading, I, reading the wrong part. From then on, Pilate tried to release him. <laughs> In other words, this, this, this kind of got to Pilate a little bit. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, notice this, you are no friend of Caesar, the king. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. Okay. Yeah, because this is, well, and keep in mind, Pilate didn't care if Jesus claimed to be the son of God. That meant nothing to him. He'd be a kook. But claiming to be a king, now this is something they could write letters to Caesar and say, our regional leader that you imposed over us, he actually let a man claiming to be king get off, and he's got a contingent of people that follow him around. Yeah, it's only 11 people, but nonetheless, Caesar doesn't know that. And Pilate could have gotten himself into a lot of trouble. So they're basically trying to scare Pilate with essentially the law, the Roman law. And, and uh, okay. Yeah, no, I was, I was gonna bring another thing out about that, the way that, because that present participle is used again here at the end of this, everyone saying, everyone uh, uh, saying this. But anyway, verse 13, or making, literally. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside, sat at the judge's bench at the, place called the stone pavement or in the Hebrew Gabbatha. And it was the day of the preparation of the Passover and it was about noon. And he said to the Jews, here is your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? See, they're gonna get one last shot at whether they're gonna do it right. And the chief priest replied, we have no king but Caesar, or my Bible says the emperor, but Caesar. Then he handed him over to be crucified. In other words, they don't want him to be king. So they took Jesus, carrying the cross by himself. He went out to that place that is called the skull. He skips over them, meeting the, the man that ends up carrying the cross for him because he's so weak. The place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, with Jesus in between. Pilate also had an inscription written, put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, 
And many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, in our Bibles say in Latin. If you look at it in, in Greek, it's Romiste. In other words, it would have been Latin because that was the language that they were speaking and in Greek. Now, the significance is, is what's, what time of year is this for the Hebrew festival schedule? What? Passover. And so you had Jews from all over the world that have come to keep Passover. And so there's all these Jews that speak these different languages and they read this. What's the other significance of this thing that's, that Pilate writes up there? If you're walking along the path, what? I still can't. You're crucifying a king. Okay. What did you say? Yeah, it was their offense. So if you're walking by and you go, what are these guys dying for? Oh, that guy attempted violent robbery. That guy, oh, must have, he was an insurrectionist. He was trying to be king. Oh, and there's another violent robber, because that's what it tells us the two guys on either side were. Everybody could know that offense. By the way, in their culture, that wasn't as sensitive as ours is. You might walk by there on your way into the city, and you might have your kids in tow, and your kids are like, what's that? And you're like, that's what happens when you're a violent robber. <laughs> you know? Seriously. I, mean, I know, but see, to claim to be king of the Jews meant he was an insurrectionist, because they knew there was only Caesar. Those people knew. That's right. On the Jews. Yeah, he is. But that's what that is up there. That thing is to tell you what his offense is. It identified the person and identified their offense. But in a sense, it tells you going back to initially you brought up the king issue and then you brought up the God issue. This keeps him straight with Rome. He doesn't care if the Jews are upset with him. Right. He cares if he's doing everything right to Caesar. Right. Caesar's the one that's going to come down on him. That's right. And he did get, by, by the way, just historically, he did get in a little bit of trouble later and did get ended up getting ousted from his seat by Caesar uh, within a year or two of the, these events happening. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a capital crime against him, but that, just like Leslie was pointing out, the jailer, if he would have let people escape on his watch, he would have got it. Well, if Pilate would have let an insurrectionist get loose, he would have lost his head to Caesar, or worse, which means you get severely beaten before you do that. Anyway, therefore the, um, therefore the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, but they also took his tunic. Remember, the tunic is, a, is like a long t-shirt that came down about to your knees and you'd wear it under your clothes if you were working. Most people think this is what Peter was probably wearing in the boat in, Acts, or in John 21 when he's fishing because a lot of times you take your outer garment off. Jesus even set, refers to this in when he's talking about at the time of the Son of Man or when you see the abomination of desolation. He says, don't go back to the end of the field to grab your garment. You just take off running, meaning you're running in just basically your light t-shirt that you worked in. Your nice robe that you normally would wear around is hanging on a fence post at the end of the field. Don't go back and get it. So that's this nice garment that he's wearing. And I don't know if any of you feel like this, but if you've ever bought a cheap t-shirt 
and that seam isn't quite right and you start doing stuff you get sweaty it rubs and it hurts notice what it says here this is all important the tunic then was seamless from the top under the bottom you that meant it had to be woven that way okay it wasn't a piece of fabric that was then made and sewn together it was seamless so they said to one another let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see who will get it now notice how what this does this fulfills two scriptures by this unique situation they divided my clothes among them and for my clothing they cast lots they did two things because he had two items of clothes one that was okay the fabric's good for that we'll break we'll tear it up but this thing no let's not rip this up one of us is going to get a nice nice tunic here <clears throat> And this is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. So we got two Marys, okay, here together. And Mary Magdalene. So we got three Marys now at the cross. And by the way, who are they named after when they're called Mary? Does anybody know? I've said this before. What? Miriam. Moses's older sister because that's in the Greek that's actually the word Mary is Maria or Miriam depending on on what on the passage you read it in when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her he said to his mother woman behold or here is your son <clears throat> and then he said to the disciple here is your mother and from that hour the disciple took her into his home to me this is very this just again shows you his compassion he could have just died and hoped one of his brothers would take care of take care of his mom but being the eldest even then he still cares for his mother even though to our knowledge we don't know if she's a believer at this point yet because we know earlier she wasn't she was treasuring things in her heart but she hadn't put all this together after this when jesus knew that all was finished notice all the other events that happened on the cross that john doesn't communicate for us because it's not necessary for you and I to know these things in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled he says I'm thirsty or I thirst and we've talked about this before in the context of John what was thirst related to holy the Holy Spirit what yeah so and he said that the Holy Spirit would come and he would like he says in the in um uh, John 4 he says that you will have a well of water that will spring up flowing unto eternal life because the spirit takes this ministry of the spirit that they get and then from that produces eternal life now it all happens for us just like that but the this is I, and I believe this is significant because we know from the other gospels that we have Jesus crying out my God my God why have you forsaken me what we don't have that in John but we do because he's talking about it in terms of his thirst He's thirst for the ministry of the Spirit, which is significant for us in here. They, of course, don't know that that's what he's talking about. And there was a jar full of sour wine there. That's that vinegar we were standing there. So they put a sponge full of wine on a branch of hyssop. They held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now that expression, it is finished, I just always think it's important for us to understand because so many people, and I don't want to in any way diminish the significance of what Christ did on the cross, please. But Jesus has to physically die yet. If all he had to do was experience spiritual death, it just could have ended right here. 
could have got off the cross. But he also, part of the punishment was physical death because that was part of the punishment that came on Adam. Adam wasn't just cut off from God spiritually. He also began to die. So physical death was a penalty. And Jesus has to bear the physical penalty of death. And he has to rise again. So really, the work, everybody goes, the work of Christ is done here. No, it's not. What's done? The spiritual death. The spiritual death. The spiritual death. And he says he, he finished it, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And in the other Gospels, it says, Father, into your hands. He adds one other, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I always see that picture. I remember watching. I'd kind of seen people do this before, but Ben did this with kids for games uh, several years back when I helped with games for VBS. And he had kids do that trust fall, you know, where you fall back and you got like, uh, six kids and two of them are holding hands and the kids would fall back into their hands and then they hey we want you to do it Mr. Orth and he gets up there and he goes well I'm kind of bigger you know when you got these kids oh we can do it so they get you know one extra set of kids in there and he falls back you wouldn't do that if you had somebody that you didn't trust if you didn't if they couldn't do this if if you have somebody that's abandoned you would you then fall into their arms like that no no you wouldn't fall into their arms that, again, is telling you the separation from the Father is done because he can commit his, his, his spirit into the Father's hands. Verse 31, what? So, uh, I gave up my spirit commit, so you're going to keep my spirit. Well, Safe. what? Yeah, well, it, it's just, it's, I think it's a, way of, it's, it's a way of expressing, I'm at the point of death now, I yield my spirit, but I put it in your hands. It's kind of a way of recognizing, for you as a believer, a good thing to think about. If your time comes and you realize, I'm going to die, unless the Lord comes in the next, you know, one hour or ten minutes, I'm going to die. I'm done here, let's just say. And let's say you've got a really pretty good idea that that's actually going to happen. You can stand there and say, God... My life's always been in your hands. And it is even at the point of death <laughs> when my life is ending here on earth. My life's in your hands. Uh, I, I've told you the story about, you know, when Katie had, Katie had COVID and then had Isaac at, right at the end of that and was so sick and she was touch and go in the hospital and her worrywart father is trying to help clean house, but I'm just worrying like crazy over here. And I needed to walk, I needed to walk through the, the stories of God in the Bible to remember who God is. And it all came to a conclusion at the end as I'd walk through all these stories, probably took me 15 minutes or so, just thinking through all of these things I know about God and to say, her life has been, is, and always will be in your hands. And we had this conversation not that long ago when Holland was talking about, you know, Clinton is in this, what do they call it right now? He's... Uh, immediate response force. Immediate response force. And that's one of the things, you know, because you could say, I don't want my child to put, ever put themselves in a job or a thing where they might put their life at risk. But you know the thing is, unless a person is doing that because they're defiant against God, going, God, I'm not going to do what you're doing. I'm gonna, I want to do this thing. I would just say There's, their life still is in God's hand. And he could have kept a quiet job. Maybe he could have stayed in Royal City and just mowed lawns for a living for the rest of his life. And it would have been a safe job. And his life is no more secure than it would be if, God take, if it's God's will for him to go abroad. Those are the kind of things to remember with your kids. I have to remind myself, because even though my kids are adults, 
I still worry like that at times. Peg will tell you that. I can still worry about them. But their life is in God's hands. And Jesus is able to commit him, his, his life into the Father's hands. And it's, it's always that way. It's always that way. But I can do it now because our relate, that, that time of separation is over. Now I can be confident of this. Verse 31. Could anybody oh. else before him say that? Could anybody else before that? Uh, potentially. I, I think so. The one thing, the one thing he does that nobody else can do is he. Re, it, other scriptures literally say he releases his spirit, and I don't think you can. Even though you're on your deathbed, you can't just say I'm. I'm done now. You lay there going, well, okay, that didn't work. You know, there are seriously, there are people that are on their deathbed and they want to die because of the pain and the problems they're going through, but they can't. I think it possibly even though he's God. We also know that there was a part of his humanity that learned, grew, even up to this point, possibly. That, you know, clearly his divine person determined what the human consciousness knew at what time and as that growth happened at a human level. Could it be that it seems to indicate in Luke 16 that when the rich man, I don't remember if it's the rich man or the poor, the beggar, died, spirit beings guided the immaterial part to where they were supposed to go. Right. I mean, we don't know where to go. Yeah. How does a human being that's been bound by a body that's limited to surface earth know how to get to the center of earth? Or even to heaven for that or matter. Even to heaven, yeah. You know, and so is that possibly that could be that, that he was guided down into the center of the earth yeah. with some escorts. Right. And he goes in there uh, I'm the seat of the woman. You know, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that could be. I, I don't know. So, verse thirty-one. Since it was the day of the preparation, the Jews, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross. Because remember, this is the day Passover. Technically, is going to start at sundown, six, about six p.m. They're going to slay the animal in the afternoon. About the same time that Jesus is dying, they're slaying the animals. But it's that night then that is when Passover, because that's the day. Remember, their day starts at 6 p.m. and goes till 6 p.m. And so this is the prep. This is still the preparation day from their point of view. And everybody goes, well, then how did Jesus celebrate the Passover? And there's we don't know for sure. It could be just something that Jesus decided to do because he knew he was going to be out of the country. Because there were condition, there were opportunities. Uh, there was provision for a Jew that was out of the country to keep Passover at a different time that's designated in the Old Testament, but usually that's a month later. But there's also history that tells us there were so many Jews that traveled into the country that a lot of times Jews that had come from other parts of the kingdom would come in at certain parts and they actually kept Passover one day early just because otherwise there were so many animals that were being brought up and checked by the priests at the temple that they didn't all keep it on the same day. But I don't, we don't know if that's the case either. I'm just telling you, okay. But it's, it's so the bodies would not be left on the Sabbath. And this is not a Saturday Sabbath now. This is a Passover Sabbath, especially because the Sabbath here says this day was a great day or was a high Sabbath, literally in the Greek. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other that had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead of one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. 
and you saw this was testified has testified so john's still there john testifies so that you may believe his testimony is true and he knows that he tells this truth and that blood and water coming out in this way most people understand that to be the statement out of psalm 69 that he says that um ridicule your ridicule your harsh treatment of me has broken my heart we usually just think of that as figurative which was but there's also a possibility that people take from this that it was also literal i mean that his pericardium became so filled with fluid that it actually just caused the heart to stop functioning uh, which we wouldn't call a broken heart, but you'll get the idea. Verse 36, these things occurred so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not a bone of his body, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. So we have both of these uh, Old Testament passages um, that are talking about Jesus. The bones not being broken was because, see, that was required for a Passover lamb. He didn't bring things. And pierced is the prophecy that comes out of Zechariah. After these things then, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. And by the way, that, that word permission there is that word for I do not permit a woman to teach. This is an example of that word here where it just simply means he turned it completely over to him. Yeah, yeah, you, you do whatever you need to do. He didn't give him all kinds of instructions and directions. Um, other passages, we find out that they come back and they go, he's dead already? <laughs> In other words, people didn't die as fast as Jesus did. And then it says, and so he came and removed the body. Nicodemus, who had, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds, and they took the body of Jesus, wrapped it with spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. And now there was a garden in that place where he was crucified. And in the garden, there was a new tomb. We know from other passages that tomb belongs to Joseph of Arimathea. And it was a brand new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And you guys all know the history of that. They had ossuary boxes. You know, remember they found that ossuary box, the bones of... What is it? The bones of a man by the name of Jesus, brother of James. Oh my goodness. It's got to, see, Jesus didn't rise again. What they don't realize is Jesus was number one name in Israel in the days of Jesus. Because who's, what, if you actually pronounce that name, it'd be Joshua, one of their greats. And the second guy, James. You know what James is? It's not James in Greek at all, it's Jacob. It's Jacob. It's the, the head of their nation. They're the 10 tribes of Jacob or Israel. <laughs> See? So those, they were two of the most popular names. Do you know how many, I've listened to historians say, do you know how many people there were at that time that had brothers named Jacob and Joshua? It's just, but people like to be um, sensational. That 100 pound, that 100 pound weight, I have a note that says it's about 120 pounds. And uh, when you think about it, okay, if he was 150 pounds, up to maybe 200, who knows? Um, and then you have 120 pounds he's wrapped with. That's a lot of weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have 120 pounds on you and you're wrapped up tight, you're Yeah, yeah. And so they put him in this tomb. 
or what I was saying about the ossuary box because people because I didn't ever understood this when I read this. They would dig a tomb. They had a, they had like holes in the wall that they would lay the bodies into. And sometimes you might have more than one body in a tomb at a time. But when that body had become desiccated at the point, they would take the bones and put them in little boxes and they'd set them around on the floor in the room or in other small holes in the walls. So you'd have a family tomb that you might have five or six generations that were all buried in the same tomb. Just like the kings of Europe that have, you know, vaults and such for all of that. Anyway, just like I said, probably a fact you all are aware of. Really? No bones at all. Oh, not even any bones. Oh, wow. Okay. Ah. And they just sweep them off to the end of the thing. There's a back and it just goes on the back and they all go down into a common burial. And then they put the next body in at that top. Very interesting. Down to one. Okay. Remember, that's when Shirley decided she might as well be cremated because that's what was happening anyway, ashes to ashes. Yeah. Remember that? I do not remember that. Oh, yeah, because, you know, in years past, when, you know, when we were kids, uh, being cremated was frowned upon as being like pagan. Mm -hmm. And um, her and Dwight went to New Orleans and she saw that and she decided, I might as well be yeah, and despite what the Catholic Church says, probably all the original disciples—they're all just dust now too. Because the reason I say that is because there's Catholic churches that have little glass things, and this is the bone from the right hand of Peter and stuff like that, or things like that. When we were in uh, Italy, we were, there's a huge, fancy cathedral everywhere, and you're like, you go in there, and you're like, holy cow, and this is like a whole art thing, you know? And you're like, wow, this is beautiful. And you go around the back, and there's like some priest that's like mummified. Mm -hmm. yeah. Looks like he's been perfectly preserved, and you're like, they're they're venerating this priest for whatever reason, and you're just going, really? It's pretty astounding. In the midst of this, like, way nicer than any art museum you see here, you know. <laughs> but it's very fascinating. Hmm. And the last verse, verse 42, and so because it was the preparation day, of the, the Jewish day of the preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And we'll pick up next week in chapter 20, walk through some things that I, I wanted to hit. There's a verse in chapter 20 I really wanted to come back to. We started off with it at the beginning of John. But uh, um, I don't know how often you do this, but I think every once in a while it, it doesn't hurt us to go through and read through the Gospels. They're really good accounts for reminding us of who Jesus is and what he went through and things like that. And uh, and it keeps things straight because there's a lot of legend that floats in Christianity and even in evangelical Christianity among people that don't read their Bibles. They just, they watch, I watched a show on the History Channel <laughs> or something like that. And they've got these things. And then you compare it to Scripture going, mm, you may have had some experts share some things, but the, let's stick with what the Bible says. So anyway, okay. Well, we'll bring that to an end.